0: Your Bibles, if you would, back uh, once again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And for those of you who are new to City Church, we are in a series of sermons covering Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we have slightly modified the title of the hit Netflix show uh, as the name for the series Stranger Things Life in the Right Side Up. And the reason for that title, again, for those of you who are new, is that the idea imagined in that Netflix show is that there's an alternative universe, or excuse me, an alternate universe that is a dark reflection, a dark echo of this world. And it's not an altogether ridiculous idea. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contends that this very world in which we live is a dark echo of the world that God originally created. That this very world in which we live is a world that has been twisted and wrung by sin, distorted. It is very much this world, upside down, from the world that God created. And so, for instance, we've already seen in the sermon that Jesus addresses the anger and the contempt and violence in our world. And he says that's not anything like the world that God created. And He, we saw, uh, we've seen so far that he addresses the misogyny in our culture, the contempt toward women and how it manifests itself in the sexual degradation of women, how it makes women disposable and replaceable commodities in marriage. Jesus says this is all very much upside down. And not only does it make the people who live this way miserable, it creates a world in which people in general cannot flourish. And the Bible tells us that one day in the future, Jesus Christ is going to return and turn the world right side up again. But until then, The good news of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is possible to uh, to learn to live in a way right here on earth that allows you as an individual to flourish, but that also creates a culture in which the other people around you can flourish as well. All right, let's pick up the reading in Jesus' sermon today, verse 33, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair, white or black. All you need to say is simply, yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one." So if you have been with us throughout this sermon series, you can see that Jesus sticks to the pattern that we've seen him use throughout this sermon so far. He begins by describing the upside-down nature of this physical world by using the phrase, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And then he points us to what life in, the right, in a right-side-up world looks like when he says, but I tell you that's the, that's the structure that is, that is used throughout this sermon so far. In this case, these references to oaths and vows and swearing by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even your head, these all seem very obscure, like very obscure references to us. And they are, though the issue that is sort of the core that is wrapped up in all of this will actually be very familiar to you and could it be more relevant. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage with the same structure that we have used throughout uh, most of this series so far. I want to start with this. Let's start with this point, the justification for duplicity. The justification for duplicity. Because that's what all of this is about that Jesus is referring to here. He's talking about duplicity. The religious leaders had distorted God's law into a system that allowed them to be deceitful, shady. Uh, In other words, duplicitous about promises and and commitments. And yet, they distorted in a way that they could do all of that and yet still claim that they were following the letter of God's law. And here's how it worked. When Jesus says, "...you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made." Well, he's referring to the teaching of the religious leaders who used two passages in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament to justify their duplicity. One of them was Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. And it says, You shall not swear falsely by my name. The other passage was in the book of Numbers. And it comes from Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. It says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now back then, there were no legal documents, there was no paper trail that solemnized agreements. So if you lived in Israel and obeyed God's law, you would say to someone, I will pay you X amount of money for your land, and I vow by God's name that I will do it. If you ran an ad on Craigslist and said, this car is in perfect working condition, you would swear by God's name that you, were twel- that you were telling the truth, and that was to be it. The person could count on that. People could trust you. If you put a picture of yourself on an online dating, dating site, you would say, I swear by God's name, this is what I look like. And anyone who met you wouldn't have to wonder if that was really you today or if it was a picture of you 30 years ago. They could just trust you. But remember, those of you who've been with us, what what the religious leaders liked to do was to honor the letter of the law while violating the spirit of the law. So what they did was that they conveniently distorted these two commands by teaching that as long as you didn't swear by God's name, you could renege on your oath, your promise, your vow, and still be obeying God's law. And so the way that they would do this, it was really slick. They would, a man would swear by heaven, or he would say, I swear by earth, or he would swear by the holy city, Jerusalem, or he, maybe he would swear by the hair of his head. All of this made the, the oath that they were making sound very religious and very important, and of course, sincere. But it allowed him a way out if he didn't choose to fulfill the oath, because he didn't say, I swear, by God's name. See how they're doing it? It's really shady, really tricky. It's just if I don't swear by God's name, I can, I can promise anything and not fulfill it. If I swear by God's name, I got to fulfill it. But anything else, I can break my promise. I can break my commitment. Okay? This is how duplicity was, justif- was justified. I can, I can lie. I can twist the truth. I can shade the truth however I want as long as I don't swear by God's name and I have still fulfilled the law. Well, that's the justification that they had for duplicity. Now, I want to look, like we did again again, like we did last week, I want to look at the indictment on the justification for duplicity. The indictment on the justification for duplicity. What does Jesus think about this? Look at verse 34. He says, But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, You can't make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus pulls no punches about what he thinks of this. He calls this justification for duplicity evil. And Jesus is saying that if you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even the hair of your head as a way of tricking someone or deceiving someone with religious-sounding words, you are debasing the name of God. Because heaven, earth, Jerusalem, even your own head, they're all his creations. And he says this is nothing but a religious-sounding bob and weave in order to deceive and manipulate and coerce people. That's the indictment. That's the indictment what he says. It's, for, it's, it's all from the evil one, the father of lies. Now, please understand, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to, for instance, swear in a court of law to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Okay? He's not saying it's wrong to recite vows in a wedding. He's not making a vow that he's concerned about. He's concerned about how deception degrades God's name. And how deception destroys people and cultures in God's name. Now, see, we don't, of course, live in a religious culture that does a lot of swearing. Or at least swearing in the way Jesus describes it here. But I think you would agree with me that truth is just as scarce in our own upside-down culture as it was then. In fact, so much so that nearly everyone in our culture these days is suspect. We're cynical about everyone because we know how we shade the truth. We know how we cheat. We know how we exaggerate. We know how we make promises that we have no intention of keeping. We know how we make up excuses and how we betray confidences. All is a matter of normal everyday living. And so much of business, politics, government, the educational system, science, religion, even family life is built on falsehoods and half-truths. So much of that is the case that a sudden revelation of the whole truth would cause society as we know it to disintegrate because it would be too devastating to handle. Just think about advertising, for example, and the deception that is inherent in it. How claims are exaggerated, how claims are implied but not true, how the truth is shaded, even in advertising. My wife, a number of years ago, wanted me to eat healthier cereal in the morning. I'm a Frosted Mini Wheats fan. I don't know about you. She said to me, you need to eat natural. I said, sugar is natural. She didn't buy it. She stopped buying Frosted Mini Wheats and brought home this all-natural cereal that is called Kashi. How many of you are familiar with Kashi? <clears throat> okay. Okay. If you by some chance don't recognize the name, just imagine uh, chopping styrofoam into little pieces and putting them in milk, and you'll get what my breakfast experience was like for years. It wasn't that it tasted awful. It was just that I had gone from frosted mini-wheats to styrofoam. Well, guess what? In an article in the Wall Street Journal about four years ago, The litigation director for the Center for Science in the Public Interest, a man by the name of Stephen Gardner, said this, and I quote, Kashi, which claims to be all natural, actually contains artificial ingredients. (laughs) To which I say, of course, styrofoam is an artificial (laughs) ingredient. I was both furious and elated at the same time. Furious because the makers of Kashi had ruined my breakfast for years under the guise that I was eating all natural. Elated in that I immediately went out and bought a case of frosted mini Wheats. <laughs> Somebody at Kashi lied. But there are deceptions that are more destructive than false advertising. There are people who have been robbed of life savings by financial advisors That they trusted. Government officials who steal money donated for people in crisis and hide that it never got to the people for whom it was donated. Boys and girls have been entrusted by their parents to pedophiles posing as priests, pastors, teachers, and suffered at their hands. Or think about this this is a form of deception. How many of you, when you go into a movie theater, let's say, or a restaurant or a bar, how many of you find yourself scanning the faces there to see who is acting innocent for the moment, but who will soon become an active shooter? That's deception. Acting innocent and then becoming an active shooter? Maybe if you're not scanning faces, you're taking other precautions, not sitting with your back to the door. Planning your escape route should something come up. up. You know, we have an officer here every Sunday walking the halls of this church. uh, Every Sunday, because in an upside-down world, even a church or a synagogue or a mosque isn't safe. And you know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you here this morning are carrying a weapon because you've decided that you can't trust anyone anywhere. Lots of people carry weapons these days, even people you would at least expect. I read a story the other day about a woman who had finished shopping, and when she returned to her car, there were four men inside of her car. She dropped her shopping bags, and she pulled out a handgun, and she screamed, I I have a gun, and I know how to use it, so get out of the car. And the men in the car... Didn't wait for a second invitation. They got out and they ran like crazy. She was terribly shaken, as you can imagine. She loaded her shopping bags and then got into the car. But no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't get her key into the ignition. And then it dawned on her her car was parked four or five spaces away. <laughs> She loaded her grocery bags into her own car and then drove to the police station to turn herself in, and the desk sergeant to whom she told the story nearly fell off his chair laughing, and he pointed to the other end of the counter where four men were reporting a carjacking by an old woman with thick glasses and curly white hair. (laughs) She was less than five feet tall carrying a large handgun, they said. Fortunately, no charges were filed. Listen, seriously, I'm not making any kind of social commentary on guns here. I'm just asking this. When people in a society decide that truth is so scarce that they begin to arm themselves against one another, can we be said to be flourishing as a culture? See, people in cultures can't flourish when they're living in fear of being deceived, taken advantage of, hurt, or even killed by someone else's Deception. Which is why Jesus says this duplicity and its justification by distorting God's law is evil. It is upside down. What's the cure? What's the cure for duplicity? What does Jesus say? Look again at the last sentence, verse 37. This is about as clear as you could get. You don't need a seminary degree to interpret this. He says all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that, all of, this, all of this distortion of the law, all of this justification, all this shady stuff, he said it all comes from the evil one. It's pretty simple. Some of you might even say that's naive or quaint. Maybe you would say it's pie in the sky. But imagine a world in which you didn't have to be skeptical of people, in which you didn't have to be cynical, hardened by all of the times and all of the people who have promised you something only to let you down who portrayed themselves one way, only to turn out to be exactly the opposite. Imagine a world for a moment where you could trust that the motives and the intentions of all of the people that you encountered around you were oriented around your good. Can you imagine the peace that would bring to your soul? Can you imagine the anxiety that that would... Imme- that would immediately leave your soul and the places in your body that you carry all of that anxiety. One day, one day, that's what the whole earth will be like when Jesus returns and when he turns this world right side up again. But it's possible to live right side up now, right now, in an upside down world. And what Jesus is teaching here is that people who live right side up aren't deceitful, shady, or manipulative. They're truthful, sincere, and dependable out of love for God and out of love for others. And as a result, they flourish, and the people around them can flourish. Because they just let their yes be yes, and they let their no be no. It's pretty simple. Now, speaking of letting your yes be yes, this brings me back to the part of last week's passage on divorce that I didn't finish. I wonder if you think it's a coincidence that Jesus moves straight from talking about divorce into a passage about letting your yes be yes and your no be no and honoring your vows. Perhaps we could refer to it as letting your I do be I do. And of course, it is no coincidence, the order of this sermon, everything about the order of Jesus of this particular sermon is, is intentional. And I said last week that the passage in, here in Matthew chapter 5 about divorce, the previous verses that we read last week, verses 31 and 32, along with a few others in the Gospels, have been used to lay guilt on people who have been victims of divorce that they never wanted. Or they've been used to keep people in marriages that really weren't marriages in any sense of the design that God had for marriage. And it's because many people wrongly believe that Jesus taught that sexual immorality is the only legitimate reason for divorce. But, as we saw last week, that's not what Jesus was teaching in the previous verses, in verses 31 and 32. And we saw, as I said, we talked about that last week. I'm not going to revisit all of that. But to answer the question that I left over from last week, I do want to take you back to one line that we looked at last week from Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus was again speaking about divorce, marriage and divorce. And he was speaking to the Pharisees. He was speaking to the religious leaders. And he said to them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives And then notice what he says. Because your hearts were hard. And here's the answer to the question that I left over from last week hard heartedness. Hard heartedness. That's the reason legal steps to end a marriage are sometimes necessary. Hard heartedness. And let me say a few quick things about this. First, I want you to notice that when Jesus says this, he's not making a collective statement here. In other words, he's not saying the law permitted divorce because both spouses in a marriage had hard hearts. Although sometimes that does happen. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that the husband's heart, one spouse's heart, was hard toward the other spouse, toward their wives. And so they wanted rid of them. And As we saw last week, God in his mercy recognized that if these hard-hearted men couldn't divorce their wives, their wives would, they were in for lives of misery and abuse, possibly even being killed by these men. And so he permitted divorce because in an upside-down world, sometimes divorce is the better of two bad options. I want to also point out what hard-heartedness means in the context of marriage hardheartedness in the context of marriage is ongoing unrepentant sin that makes a mockery of marriage it's ongoing unrepentant sin that makes a mockery of marriage it's a way of it's a way of denying your marriage vows reneging on your marriage vows you're not letting your yes be yes It's ongoing unrepentant sin that makes a mockery of marriage. This could be adultery. But it could also be the alcoholic husband who refuses to seek treatment for his addiction and he neglects his responsibilities to his wife. It could also be the emotionally abusive wife who refuses to own her brutality. It could be the unrepentant husband who refuses to be sexually intimate with his wife and won't deal with the issues behind his refusal. I mean, those are just a few of the ways that hardness of heart is manifested in the context of marriage. And please understand, hardness of heart isn't just ordinary garden variety frustrations that couples have in marriage. Hard heartedness is ongoing, unrepentant sin that makes a mockery of the idea of marriage. It is so destructive that the result of it relationally couldn't possibly characterize a marriage. That's what hard heartedness is. And Jesus says that hard-heartedness, not just sexual immorality, hard-heartedness is the reason that sometimes legal steps need to be taken to end a marriage. I also want to point out that taking the necessary legal action to end a marriage is not the moment of divorce. Divorce happens way before that. When a spouse's heart has become hardened, when he or she is unrepentant and unwilling to work to deal with their destructive behavior, I say this because I've known people who have had to legally declare a marriage had ended when they never really wanted a divorce in the first place. They wanted their marriage. They wanted their spouse to repent of some of the destructive behavior and and get help and, and work through it. But the spouse refused to do so. And they had waited patiently. They had prayed. They had begged their spouse to get help. But he or she didn't. And so they legally declared that this marriage isn't a marriage. And many of those people carry enormous guilt because they think that they ended the marriage by taking the legal steps necessary to declare that this marriage isn't a marriage. Many of them have been told by church leaders that they sinned by filing for divorce. And if that's the position you found yourself in, I want you to know that you are carrying unnecessary guilt. The divorce happened long before you legally ended the marriage. Your spouse reneged on their vows by being hard-hearted by their unrepentant, ongoing sin that made a mockery of marriage and their marriage vows. There's there's so much more that uh, I could say here, but it's important that you hear me on this, this specific thing right now. When you're in a marriage in which a spouse is so hard-hearted that their behavior is making a mockery of marriage and causing enormous suffering for you and perhaps for others in the family. Please hear me on this. You likely are too hurt and too wounded and perhaps even too angry to make an objective decision about the state of your spouse's heart and maybe too hurt to respond to them out of a heart of love, which is why you need the help of a church whose leaders are wise enough to determine if your spouse's heart has become hard and courageous enough to step in and to say to your spouse, out of love for both of you, we want you to get help. You are not acting as a person who wants anything close to a marriage. And if you refuse to get help, We will counsel your spouse to legally declare the end of this marriage. And understand something. Wise and courageous leaders would do that, you see, not out of an attempt to undermine marriage, not because they're trying to encourage divorce or somehow take it lightly, but because they want to uphold the dignity of the institution of marriage. Neglecting to hold a spouse, church leaders who neglect to hold a spouse accountable to the responsibilities of marriage isn't somehow, they're not somehow more honorable than saying this clearly isn't a marriage. That undermines marriage. In some cases, more than saying it's time to legally declare an end to this. And sometimes the suffering and the damage of staying in a marriage to a person whose heart has grown hard is worse than declaring it over. Wise and courageous leaders in a church are willing to take those steps. This is why the New Testament is so clear That the people who are leaders in a church must be people of proven wisdom and character. Because those are not easy and they're not enjoyable decisions to have to make. But sometimes they have to be made. And if you're in that situation, you're probably not the person to make it. That's why you need help from your church. It's what a church is about, in part. It's no coincidence that Jesus follows the conversation on divorce in Matthew 5 by saying, let your yes be yes. People who live right side up aren't deceitful, shady, or manipulative. They're truthful, they're sincere, and they're dependable. They're dependable spouses out of love for God and love for others. And I want you to understand something, because as soon as I, every time I have ever talked about this in the past, I get emails from people who misunderstand what I'm trying to say, and they accuse me of taking divorce lightly and things. I want to tell you something. I'm the product of a divorced family. My parents divorced, my mom then married, and she divorced again after that. I wouldn't wish divorce on anyone. I wouldn't wish the pain of divorce on anyone. But sometimes, sometimes, declaring an end, taking the steps, the legal steps to declare the end to a marriage is sometimes the best way to not only protect the other spouse in a marriage, But sometimes it's the best way to uphold the dignity of marriage. Right-side-up spouses aren't deceitful. They're not shady. They're not manipulative. They're truthful, sincere, and they're dependable out of love for God and others. And they are so because they've become disciples of the Lord Jesus, who out of love for his bride, out of love for people who once considered Jesus their enemy, He kept his oath even when it hurt him to do so, even when it wasn't convenient for him to do so, even when it cost him everything to do so. He kept his oath to atone for the sins of humanity by sacrificing his blood, his body, and his life. His yes never wavered. His yes was always a yes. And the Apostle Paul once wrote later in the New Testament, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. People who are disciples of Jesus, their yeses are yes. Their noes are no's. It's that simple. Would you bow your head with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we do not take the institution of marriage lightly, We recognize the significance, the importance of it. We recognize the symbolism that's involved in it. And yet at the same time, we also recognize that there are spouses whose hearts grow hard. And out of love and mercy for everyone involved, sometimes the best step is to legally declare an end to a marriage. And Lord, again, we don't don't want that. We don't take that lightly, but we understand that. Lord, let us be people who in all ways, in all of our dealings with others, we let our yes be yes and we let our no be no. Lord, as spouses, those of us who are married, let our yeses be yes to our spouses. Let us be dependable, loving spouses over the course of a lifetime. Lord, for those that are here this morning that may have found themselves victims of a of, uh, spouse's heart who turned hard, pray, Lord, that you would remove this morning the guilt that they have unnecessarily carried around. Lord, for those who may have had a hard heart toward a spouse, and maybe they were the ones that caused a divorce, I pray this morning that they would be able to own that, that they would be able to repent of that, and that, Lord, they would find forgiveness at the cross. Because even hard-heartedness toward a spouse, even causing the end of a marriage, you died on the cross for even that kind of sin and so Lord I pray that they would find forgiveness at the cross Lord we thank you so much that your yes that every promise that you made is a yes in Christ and Lord Jesus we thank you for what you have done on our behalf and it is in your name that we worship and pray today Amen Thank you.